is San Francisco's favorite nonprofit art house cinema, bringing you the best, coolest, weirdest, most thought-provoking movies of the past, present, and future. Hands down, there is no better way to get your film fix than at this legendary historic theater. Visit www.roxy.com. That's www.roxie.com today for showtimes and tickets. at mutinyradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Everyone. where they said hey babe take a walk on the wild side I said hey Joe take a walk on the wild side sugar pump fairy came and hit the streets looking for soul food and a place to eat went to the seen him go 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 they said hey sugar take a walk on the wild side i said hey babe take a walk on the wild side She had to crash Valium would have helped that patch I said, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side I said, hey honey Take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls say 
turn you around
Okay, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, adults and kids, everybody, welcome to Labor and Love Radio here on Mutiny Radio. Labor and Love Radio comes to you every Saturday morning between the hours of 10 and 12. A show where we tell it like it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, where you work, you're probably on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your house and into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Welcome, everybody. We started out with our set. We're going to celebrate Gay Pride Month, June, the roots of the Gay Pride Movement in the Stonewall Incident, so-called Stonewall Riots in 1969. We're going to hear from prominent gay music writers and performers. We got radio labor. We got working class history. We got this day in labor history. We got a short biography of Bayard Rustin, a gay man who organized the March on Washington and the Poor People's campaign after Martin Luther King's death and all the shenanigans that went on around his sexual identity. So welcome. I'm start with some songs by Chris Williams. Chris Williams was instrumental. No, no pun intended. <laughs> In the founding and development of a Records. No. No. Olivia Records was no. started and managed by women, some of them gay identified, but all feminists. Uh, and Olivia Records began to record. Gay women, lesbian women, uh, was founded in 1973, uh, named after a novel by Dorothy Bussey, one of whose characters fell in love with her headmistress. It was a collective, 1973, they put on 45 with. Chris Williamson on one side and Meg Christian on the other. I made $12,000 on that 45, enough to put out singer Meg Christian's first record and soon after Chris Williamson's groundbreaking album, The Changer and the Change, would play some of that. Right 
uh, prominent sound engineer at Olivia at the very beginning resigned over the controversy over her working for a lesbian identified enterprise increased because she was a transgender woman. In 1977, after repeated criticism by Anita Bryant, Olivia put out Lesbian Concentrate. If you can remember, Anita Bryant was uh, sort of uh, carried the banner of anti-homosexuality for the right-wing people. She used to talk about how it was going to pollute our children's mind. She said, gays can't recreate, so they have to convinced they have to bring people over to their their side recruit she would say gay people can't recreate so they have to recruit Um, and she used to appear on stage with very scanty costume she was like a glamour girl with a whacked out figure and you know barely enough clothes on to pat a crutch, right? Um, Olivia moved to Los Angeles and then to Oakland. Uh, People began to disperse. Olivia stopped putting out records and instead formed a series of 15th anniversary concerts in 19... 88. The two concerts at Carnegie Hall in New York City were the largest grossing concerts at that venue in its history. Yet the New York Times barely mentioned the show. Olivia increased world music and salsa records. They were the most successful with acoustic sound solo acts. Melissa Etheridge sent her demo to Olivia, but it was ultimately rejected. Let's see. So let's play a little bit from uh, Chris Williamson, The Changer and the Changed, it was called. Mm, Let's listen to this one. Glimpses of truth thou hast for me Open mine eyes, illumine me Spirit divine Oh 
Chris Williamson, I'm looking for another uh, Chris Williamson one. If I live, I'll be great. I can hardly wait. Here's some K.D. Lang with uh, Melissa Etheridge. The beat goes on. I would just take this opportunity 
to sing harmony because I love to sing harmony. Because what I really truly want is harmony with all people. And one of my favorite people, Melissa Etheridge. Sleep. Just go on and sing. Sing for the people. Sing our people. <laughs> Let's hold hands for a minute. <laughs> okay. This is going to help our I harmony. Know, I want to know why we have been. In, in the tabloids. We, we have? No, we haven't been. That's just it. I want to know why we have never well, been. Well, Every other rumored or so-called lesbian. But something is really some, off. I, was, I always felt a little out of it that I was never rumored to be with Katie Lang. Let's start some. I can understand your, your, your dismay with that, Melissa. <laughs> I'm just dismayed. Hey, are you ready? Are you ready? Come on.
one more of the uh, Olivia Records singers is a woman named Gwen Avery who was uh, one of the early performers who performed around with some of the big bands and uh, lesbian bands like B.B. Karoche anyway here's Gwen Avery Sugar Mama she calls it Yeah. 
Let's approach. Quite a set there. I got involved in the Olivia Records situation. We had uh, the last one was the Leaping Lesbians with Holly Near. Um, humorous approach, a celebration of their sexuality, and a joke. A joke right in your face. Look out! Don't look in the closet. <laughs> Um, leaping lesbians, Holly Near. Mm. 
Sugar Mama with Gwen Avery. Departed now, Gwen Avery. K.D. Lang and Melissa Etheridge. Before that, You Can Sleep. And a couple of Chris Williams, three Chris Williams songs before that. Wild Things, Hurts Like the Devil, and the classic Song of the Soul. With that album, Chris Williamson kind of launched Olivia Records. Um, unable to reinvent themselves for the changing landscape for women. Olivia could no longer sustain itself as a record label. Not sure what that means. Uh, Melissa Etheridge, as I said, was a struggling Los Angeles artist, sent her demo to Olivia, but it was ultimately rejected. She went on to become one of the most popular female performers of the 1990s and arguably the most successful lesbian musician of all time. She saved the rejection letter, letter signed by the women of Olivia, which was uh, featured in a documentary of her film. So, Olivia Records, uh, pioneer in women's music, radical feminist and lesbian music. Let's just stop here, and I want to address something, because people always ask me, well, okay, what did this have to do with labor? What does Olivia Records have to do with labor? What does Stonewall have to do with labor? Well, the people who developed these things, people... In Stonewall, as you'll see, were street people. They were working people. People who had found ways to survive by working and uh, being unemployed and being on the street, and they were still there. They were still surviving. The people who started Olivia Records were working women, women who maybe were musicians, part-time musicians, and wanted to do something radical in women's music. And they did, but they did it without the big bucks. As you probably understand, people who are making a lot of money and who are doing well in their careers are not the ones who are going to think about coming out and risking all the things you risk by doing that in this society, this mad kind of obsessed, sex-obsessed, gender-obsessed society. This was especially true in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And the people now who are prominent and who are out and who are proud celebrate their pride in June at the gay parade in San Francisco These are people who were working people. Harvey Milk himself was the owner of a, of a camera shop where he worked. It wasn't like uh, people who, like I say, people who are very successful and who are getting rich, making money, are not about to come out or were not about to come out. It was the people who had no other choice who wanted to make space for people like them. 
Okay. Uh, Olivia Records. Starting point. And I'm, like I said, I'm going to look for a Chris Williamson afterward. Let's listen to Radio Labor first. This is a World Labor Report. And then we'll get on with Stonewall and people like Bayard Rustin. Here's Radio Labor. The Radio Labor World Report. Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, June 8, 2018. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a major world survey shows a rise in violence against unionists. The UN's ILO conference focuses on women at work. Social dialogue is needed to improve African employment. And singing, a woman's place is in her union. This is Radio Labor. A major world survey has found that attacks on labor rights, violence against trade unionists, and threats to democratic activity have dramatically increased over the past year. The survey, called the Global Rights Index, is conducted annually by the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC represents national trade union centers such as the Ghana Trade Union Congress. The 2018 Global Rights Index reports on activities in 142 countries using internationally recognized indicators to assess how workers' rights are being protected or not in law and in practice. I talked to Sharon Burrow about the Global Rights Index. Ms. Burrow is the General Secretary of the ITUC. I asked her first about the index finding that the space for democratic activity in countries has been diminishing. When freedom of association, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly is denied, then workers themselves are at risk both of physical violence and indeed arrests. And in the worst of the countries, of course, we're still seeing they shoot trade unions. But there's no doubt that when more than 54 countries in the world have seen an increase in constraint around democratic space in these terms then it's not just our activists who are at risk. It's actually democracy itself. So this is particularly an indicator of the increase in uh, authoritarianism, in dictatorship, and of course, the social unrest that leads to conflict with more than 50 countries now experiencing uh, some form of conflict. So this is not a future on which we can build human and labour rights, where freedom of association, freedom of action is actually respected. The Global Rights Index lists the worst countries for workers' rights. What are some of these countries and how have they been violating the rights of working people? Well, this is not a list that any country should want to be on. But Algeria, Bangladesh, Cambodia, Colombia, Egypt, Guatemala, Kazakhstan, the Philippines, Saudi Arabia and Turkey all make up the top 10 worst countries for workers in the world. And again, that comes back to denial of freedom of association, so the right to join a union, denial of the right to strike. In fact, 87% of countries have violated the right to strike and 81% of countries deny some or all workers' collective bargaining. Clearly in those worst 10 countries, these things are absolutely at risk. 
if you take Turkey, you've seen the rise of dictatorship with a man at the helm, the President Erdogan, who's prepared to purge his opposition and simply arrest people on suspicion that they might be part of that with no due process, no trial. In the Philippines, we've seen human rights abuses right through to the point where people are shot, often with the concurrence of the president himself, who believes that's an appropriate attack on uh, on uh, those he perceives to be involved in the drug trade. In Egypt, we've seen again our independent union simply without the freedom to act, the freedom to actually associate and organise and bargain, and that's particularly disturbing. But right across the board, what we're seeing here is the results of increasing dictatorship, authoritarianism, and tragically shrinking democracy itself. Has violence against trade unionists been increasing over the past year? There's no doubt about that. When you look at the increase in arrests, in violence, in denial of the right to strike, these things simply add up to a world that is not safe for activists, but a world that workers who are incredibly brave are prepared to fight for fundamental rights. Hundreds of unionists have been in Geneva for the past two weeks attending the annual conference of the UN's International Labour Organization. Seamarie Ainsborough reports. The International Labour Organization is the United Nations agency which addresses matters of work in the world. It creates proposed international laws called conventions which tackle issues such as pay equity, child labour and slavery. A particular focus of this year's ILO conference has been on women in the workplace and sexual harassment. One of the unionists who addressed the conference was Sue Longley. Ms. Longley is the General Secretary of the IUF, the global union which represents workers in the food, restaurant, agriculture and tourism sectors. My organization, the IUF, represents many millions of women workers. According to the ILO, women now make up over 40% of the hired labor force in agriculture and almost 70% of the tourism workforce. Most of them are in jobs regarded as low-skilled. They are underpaid and undervalued. Many are in precarious work, outsourcing and contracting out of work are widespread in our sectors. And agriculture and tourism have many seasonal and temporary workers. Migrant workers make up a significant part of the workforce in both sectors. So what are the consequences of these non-standard forms of employment? Well, there are many, but the one I want to address today is sexual harassment. Women in agriculture, hotels, tourism, and also in food processing have to give sexual favors to managers and supervisors to make sure they get work. Surveys around the world have indicated that a large majority of hospitality workers, up to 89% in some countries, have experienced sexual harassment on the job in the course of their working lives. For this reason, we are calling on companies, on employers, to work with us to ensure an end to this scourge of sexual harassment. We have very concrete demands. We want prevention measures, quicker response times to reports of sexual harassment. We want protection from workers who report sexual harassment from guests, managers or co-workers. We have a list of demands, very clear, a very precise program of action. 
We held a meeting here in the ILO to discuss gender inequality in the tourism sector. At that meeting, hotel workers told us of their personal experiences of sexual harassment and assault by guests. And I tell you, it was very hard to listen to their stories, to see them in tears, recounting how their lives had been affected by this trauma, how management blamed the victim and failed to take adequate measures to protect workers. But what bravery and conviction. I was proud to be with them, proud to offer the support we could. But I don't want you to think that women are passive victims of gender discrimination. In my experience, women are organizing and fighting back in many places. Our affiliates have impressive campaigns at national level. In the Nordic countries, we are not on the menu. In the USA and Canada, hands off, pants on. Both get the message to customers that sexual harassment is not tolerated. On sexual harassment, I think for us it's clear. We need strong policy statements that sexual harassment will not be tolerated, and there needs also to be urgent action to reduce women's vulnerability by improving their position in the workforce and challenging gender stereotypes. Another delegate at the ILO's conference in Geneva was Dion Howard, an industrial relations officer with the Barbados Workers Union. There are still some improvements which need to be made which include the need to ratify Convention 189 related to domestic workers. This sector predominantly comprises women, and our current portfolio of labor legislation provides limited protection to this vulnerable sector of our workforce. The introduction of this provision and the supporting legislative instruments would be a necessary step towards decent work for the sector. Furthermore, there is a need to implement policies that take into consideration workers with family responsibilities and recognize that largely women are the primary caregivers of small children as well as parents, as is evident in our aging society. These women therefore require assistance to create and maintain the critical family work-life balance. Next year's ILO conference will celebrate the 100th anniversary of the organization. It will focus on the future of work. This is C. Marie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labor. The ILO is operated as a tripartite organization by the social partners, governments, employer groups, and labor unions. One of the unionists who participated in this year's conference was the president of the Zambia Congress of Trade Unions. Nkoli Chishimba called for more tripartite social dialogue. The employment situation globally remains precarious despite relative global economic growth. The picture is worse in African countries where employment is largely in the informal economy with only about 10% of the working population in formal employment. This implies that social protection coverage has also remained narrow in most African countries with about 90% of the working population not covered by social protection programs. We appreciate that social dialogue should be the means to achieving social protection. The Committee on Social Dialogue helped to put into perspective social dialogue in our different national setups. Without doubt, enhancing social dialogue in our different nations will help to consolidate our ideological approach to the concept of development. Such social dialogue must be structured on the principle of tripartism, taking into account that employers, organizations, workers, organizations, and government 
represent distinct constituencies and that by nature of their existence are directly involved at different levels in the world of work. Now here is the American musical group Union Nation featuring Lisa Hyde. is a project of the Machinists Union in the U.S. dedicated to supporting justice on the job by producing new labor union music. And that's it. International labor news and music you can use. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Okay, so that's um, Radio Labor, our weekly look at the world labor movement. Let's talk about Stonewall now. This is 
a holiday everyone should know about. should be a holiday. It's an occasion everyone should know about. And this is called Stonewall Explained. Hey guys, welcome to Hip Hughes History, where I'm gonna get all gay on ya. Not in a creepy way. We're gonna take a look in this episode at the 1969 Stonewall Riots. But first, we're gonna hopscotch a little bit through the beginning of the 20th century so we can find out what's going on. There's not too much gay history in American history prior to World War I, mainly because everything is so closeted and secretive. But we do, in 1912, have an incident called the Portland Vice Scandal, which occurred in Portland, Oregon, when a young man who was arrested for shoplifting seemed to blame a couple golden gay men on what he had done. And bada boom, bada bing, the next thing you know, we have a forced sexual sterilization bill in Portland. So if you were caught being gay, they would sexually sterilize you. In the 1920s, we have Harvard University creating secret courts to out gay professors and gay students and expel them and fire them from their jobs. And in World War I, the U.S. Army created what was called the Blue Discharge, which because there was no rule that you couldn't be gay, this was a way of getting rid of gay soldiers. And the Blue Discharge were used in both World War I and World War II. And actually, the GI Bill specifically eliminated people that had blue discharges from receiving any kind of benefits from the GI Bill. In the Roaring Twenties, we actually have kind of a flourishing of gay culture because everything was kind of pushed under the ground because of prohibition. So you have speakeasies in major cities that are making it easier for gays to get together, to drink, to dance, to do those types of things because the police don't know what's going on. And then in 1924, we have the first gay society, it's a temporary gay society, called the Society for Human Rights that was founded by Henry Gerber in Illinois. They actually um, produced a couple pamphlets called French and freedom, and that lasted for about a month before somebody turned to Ben for being gay, and they all got arrested. Um, and then really after World War II, uh, we have the explosion of the Red Scare, and uh, homosexuals are being included on these lists with communists because they are thought to be more susceptible to blackmail. Um, but there certainly is also an anti-gay discriminatory thing going on there. The FBI, police, the State Department, even the post office is tracking anybody thought to be a suspected homosexual and keeping their names. Um, and between 1947 and 1950, there were over 4,000 discharges from the U.S. Army for people being gay, and over 400 state employees, government employees, that were fired from their jobs for being gay. So this brings us to right around 1950, and I think it's time that we got a real organization. movement is Harry Hay. Harry Hay in 1950 created the Mattachine Society. And you'll notice a lot of these groups, including the lesbian group that was founded around the same time, the Daughters of Belitis, the D.O.B., they're not including gay and lesbian in their names because they're trying to kind of keep it subversive. There was actually, it was almost like a Mason society where you would have levels of secrecy and the higher you got up in leadership, the more that you would be informed. But everything is on the up and up. They're actually battling stereotypes. They don't like the idea of queens and cross-dressers and transgender peoples because it's kind of filling in that stereotype where they want to portray themselves as dresses and suits and ties and kind of all this stuff. And in 1965, the Mattachine Society in D.C. under Frank Carney staged the first gay protest in the United States. There's a picture of it right there. And you can see that they're in dresses and they're in suits and they're acting very 
normal. But even people in the Mattachine Society were outraged when they saw these people protesting because they didn't think that putting it in people's faces was the best way to get any movement on that. We also have the American Psychiatric Association um, in 1952 putting homosexuality on a list of mental diseases. And the study that they used to make that declaration was on a study of mental patients who were gay. So yeah, if you take a lot of mental patients that are gay, you'll probably find out that they're mental patients. Actually, Evelyn Hooker, a psychiatrist, did her own study in 1956, released it to the American Psychiatric Association, that showed that there was no difference in mental deficiencies between heterosexuals and homosexuals. But the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, is going to keep homosexuality on a list of diseases from 1952 to 1973. We have a little bit of movement in the Supreme Court, the first Supreme court gay case is uh, One Inc. versus Olson in 1958 that involved a magazine called One, kind of gay publication that was being sent through the mail that the United States Postal Service was uh, refusing to deliver. And they won that case. And it's kind of a landmark victory because now they can communicate through mail. That's a big deal because they can start to network and create larger organizations. In 1966, we have our first um, real act of civil disobedience that doesn't get a lot of press. It's called the Compton uh, Cafeteria Riots. And this is mainly the transgender community, but the, the police in Compton um, went into this um, you know, restaurant where um, the workers had called them because these people were being gay and they wanted to be served. And one of the transgender women threw a cup of coffee in one of the cops' face. And the next thing you know, there was a melee and chaos and they were ripping things up and burning things up. But Compton's cafeteria didn't spread. It didn't get enough publicity. And this is gonna prime us for Greenwich Village, 1968. So Greenwich Village is kind of in the heart of rebel territory, right? This is where the beatniks made their path. And you have gay beatniks like uh, William Burrow and Allen Ginsberg, who are openly writing about homosexuality in the 1950s. But in the early 1960s, the mayor of New York City, Robert Wagner, actually began cracking down pretty hardcore on a lot of these bars that were serving gays. And it's important to understand that these aren't gay-owned bars. The mob owns these bars. But because it's the 1964 World Fair coming up and Wagner wants to clean up the city, um, they are basically entrapping people. They are throwing people in jail um, left and right in order to clean up the city. And even when Mayor John Lindsay was elected and he promised to stop all of that harassment, the New York State Liquor Authority still was going after bars serving gays because they claimed that they couldn't give a license to any bar that um, was disorderly. And because homosexuals considered to be disorderly, they weren't going to serve them. This led to the 1966 Julius Sip-In. Um, the Mattachine Society in 1966 sent three guys into the Julius. They announced, we are homosexuals and we would like to be served. And you can see the bartender right there covering up their drinks. So there are people trying to get attention. Um, it's not radical. It's almost in the spirit of the civil rights, nonviolence kind of methodology, but it's not gaining traction. So this brings us to the late 1960s and the Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street, which is a mob bar. It was owned by the Genovese family and everybody knew it as the gay bar in the city. But 
Um, it didn't have a liquor license. They washed their glasses in a tub in the back. Uh, the toilets were overflowing. There were no fire exits. And they were paying off police every week to keep themselves open. And even by paying the police off, they were still getting raided once a month. But they were being tipped off by the police. So the raids were almost like a you know, kind of formal event that everybody knew about. But there's a lot of reasons why people think that the police went to close down the Stonewall on June 28, 1969. But the theory that I keep hearing over and over is that the mob was making more money on blackmailing the patrons of the Stonewall and like stockbrokers and stuff, and they weren't ready to give kickbacks to the police. So the police kind of had had enough with the Genovese family. So they made an unannounced raid on June 28, 1969 at about 1.20 in the morning. There were about 205 people at the Stonewall, and the way that the raids would normally work is there was a, first there was a peephole. You couldn't get into the bar unless the bouncer saw you, recognized you, some kind of idea that you were, you were gay. But the police just announced they were police, and they rammed that door down. And the way they usually did it was they would line everybody up, and if you had ID, they would let you go. And if you didn't have ID, or if you were a woman wearing man's clothes or a man wearing women's clothes, you were going to get arrested. But for some reason, things didn't go smoothly that night. There's claims that the cops were sexually harassing some of the lesbians, touching them inappropriately. Um, some of the transgender um, uh, women in the bar started to kind of talk back. Men were refusing to show their ID. And because some of the patrol wagons hadn't arrived yet, they were lining people up and there were like 100, 150 people lined up, and there were about two or 300 people in the crowd outside that was growing. And this is a spontaneous event. This was not planned. So there's a lot of reasons why it probably happened. People were probably just bottled up with anger and frustration, and this was the opportunity. Um, but there was a there was a lesbian named Storme uh, Delavari who, when she was arrested and she was going back out to the car, she shouted to the crowd, why don't you guys do something? And that was the trigger. And suddenly the place erupted. Coins and stones started getting thrown at the cops. Um, the cops started backing up from these, you know, mob of 200 and 300 gay people. They pushed them back into the bar. The police had to retreat, and they grabbed a couple people they had arrested, including uh, David Van Ronk, the famous folk singer, who's not gay, but because he's a member of the kind of the beat community and the anti-police protest community, he's there. And suddenly he's in the bar with about 10 cops um, trapped as this mob outside tries to get in. They're breaking windows, they're burning garbage and sticking it into the windows, and they eventually pulled a meter off the ground and they use it as a battering ram to break the door down. So now that they're backed up in the bar, uh, the TPF arise, the tactical police force, because it's now like a full-blown riot. And the story is, is that the transgender women lined the streets as the TPF came, and they started doing the Rockefeller kick line, yelling, we are the Stonewall girls, we wear our hair in curls, we don't wear underwear, we show our pubic hair? The cops probably didn't like that, and that's when they took out the batons and they started beating heads. Um, and it's kind of the geography that allowed this riot to happen, or you know, the building patterns. There's tons of like crooked alleyways and places to hide. But from one o'clock to four o'clock that morning, it was like Keystone cops. They're running around trying to arrest people. There's hundreds, maybe a thousand people now that are rioting and burning and turning police cars over. Um, and at about four in the morning, it quieted it down. But the next night. 
People started arriving early. They were graffitiing um, the walls next to the stone wall with terms of gay pride. And um, that night, the cops came out in force again, and they had another riot for about four hours, chasing people around and confrontations and people getting beat up. Um, it rained the next couple days. That was a Monday and Tuesday. There was a small event where the Village Voice had printed an anti-gay kind of you know slant on that story, and about a thousand people showed up at the Village Voice offices, um, threatening to burn them down. And then that Wednesday night, there was one more night of riots, and really. That's it. Um, uh, gay people after that, at least in that area, are not going to go back into the closet. And after Stonewall, we start getting the first organizations with gay in their titles, like the Gay uh, Liberation Front and the Gay Activist Association, that are going to now take a very more aggressive role in trying to change the tide of anti-gay discrimination in the United States. They would zap people. They would show up in reporters' faces and ask them questions about you know, gay rights and such like that. Um, but really what's going to make this memorable is a year later, and that's June 28, 1970, where we have the first gay pride parade in New York City, and then by the next year, it's spreading across the country, and really, now we have a gay rights movement. Like it or not! So, we hope that you learned something about Stonewall, and we certainly thank you for watching a Hip Hughes History video. If you haven't subscribed, you can do that right there with that big red button. It's crazy. There's like 400 videos. You can watch it forever. But either way, thanks a lot, guys. Remember where attention goes, energy flows, and we'll see you next time that you press my buttons. A guy named Hip Hughes, and that's his version of the Stonewall Riots and how that one incident developed into a full-fledged movement for civil rights for gay people. And uh, you'd have to ask a gay activist, has, have things changed? I would say they have. Growing up as a, a young white guy in suburban San Francisco, the whole gay issue was just always just whispered about it. It was secret. No one brought it out. Everyone was afraid you were going to get to be gay, as if it was a kind of disease or uh, the way the uh, Leaping Lesbian song goes, that there's some kind of magic that people have that can influence you to uh, be gay. Prominent gay people. Here's one. Someone who had to cloak his sexuality married for many years to a rich society woman who knew was perfectly comfortable with his uh, homosexuality, a man who wrote some of the most enduring hits of the time. Let's see what we got. Looking for a certain... This one is called Begin the Begin. Um, Cole Porter was, as I said, uh, born into money. 
his uh, father, his mother's father was supposedly the richest man in Indiana. And uh, so Porter never wanted for money. His family wanted him to go into business, but he didn't. He wanted to write music. And he married, as I say, a rich society woman in the early 20s. And she helped him out with her connections. She wanted him, of course. She wanted to change him to be a, a, a classical musician. But uh, he never did. He began to write music. And some of the most enduring songs in the American, what we call the American Songbook, were written by Cole Porter. Okay, we're waiting here. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I guess not. We'll have to leave Cole Porter for later on. By taking group action, workers can turn the tables and aim that fear back at our employers. So they're the ones too afraid to tell us no. Sometimes all it takes is three grocery workers angry enough to march on the boss. I first learned about this technique at the Labor Notes Conference this April. It's a form of direct action that puts the power of the union directly in workers' hands concept is a simple one. Employees go together to confront their boss, to air a grievance or issue, and demand an immediate resolution. I work as a deli and bakery clerk at a Kroger grocery store in Morgantown, West Virginia, where I'm a union steward. Stores in Morgantown employ a lot of college students who only stick around for as long as they're enrolled in school. Because they don't plan on making a career with the company, they're often apathetic or ambivalent about the union. One coworker said to me, oh, oh yeah, I support unions. I just don't think I'll need the union while I'm here. That is until April 12th. 
when he came up to me during my shift angry. He had just been written up for exclusive excessive tardiness. The problem was they were scheduling him to work while he was still in class. For instance, one day he was scheduled to come into work at noon, but he had class until 2.30. He felt that this was incredibly unfair after he'd been told that the store could work outside his, around his schedule. Two other co-workers, also students, overheard the conversation and chimed in. Same thing had happened to them. How does that make you feel, I asked. Oh man, did they really do that? Are you just going to let them get away with that? The last question sent them over the edge. No, said one. What can we do? I think the three of you can do something about it right now if you're willing to go upstairs and confront the manager. Of course they were willing. They were mad. And we were off on a mini-march to the boss. We stormed upstairs and into the manager's office. I shut the door behind me. His eye, the manager's eyes got wide. I said, these three employees have an issue they need to discuss with you. And then I shut up. That part is important. I'm a steward who already has a bit of a reputation as a troublemaker. I was there to clarify things as they needed, but the people who should be doing the talking are the ones directly affected, and boy did they do the talking. For about 20 minutes, they told the manager how unfair it was that they had been written up and without a union representative present at that. They told him how the stress of this job and the lack of understanding were not only making it harder for them to work, but it was affecting their schoolwork too. The manager claimed he didn't know they were in class. This was the only time I cut in. You take their course schedules up every semester. There's no reason you shouldn't know that. My coworker followed up. That's right, you have my schedule. It's not my fault you ignore my availability. The manager was flustered, embarrassed, and maybe a little afraid. He agreed to tear up their work write-ups right there in front of me, with me present as a union representative. The march was a complete success. When we got down on the work floor, my co-workers started to come down from their anger-induced adrenaline rush. One asked me, oh my God, can we do that? I laughed and shrugged. I mean, you did it. You did it. Since the issue had been resolved on the spot, there was no need to follow up with management later. All I had to do was tell my co-workers if it happened again, they should come find me and we'd march right back up there. Another success of the march came as a pleasant surprise to me. It was a few weeks later when one of the same employees came to me with an entirely separate issue. This time my co-worker asked, what can I do about this? A subtle change, but huge. Plus, all three employees have warmed up to the union and become active members. They've talked with other co-workers about what they can do to address issues at work. 
In this instance, direct action got the goods. Okay, so there's a case study uh, by a woman in West Virginia who works at a fast food place. How we marched on our boss. Remember, you're only alone when you don't stand up. Okay, let's see if we can get Joe Stafford with her version of Begin the Begin by Cole Porter. Nope, not happening. Okay. I'm going to play a biography now of Bayard Rustin, and this should probably carry us right up to the end of the day, even though I've got several other people. Like, for example, Willie Nelson is sick. I'd like to play a, play a few cuts of Willie Nelson and the Highwaymen, but we can do that next week. Here's about Bayard Russell, the man who was organizer par excellence of both the March on Washington and the Poor People's Game. We've all heard about the 1962 March on Washington, where Martin Luther King famously delivered his I Have a Dream speech. But what we don't all know about is the gay man who organized it all, Bayer Rustin. Rustin was born on March 17, 1912. He was raised by his grandparents, Julia and Jennifer Rustin, whom he believed to be his birth parents until he was an early teen. His grandmother was a Quaker and she instilled in Bayer the tenets of the Quaker faith, most importantly, nonviolence. She, along with her husband, were a part of the early NAACP, and great black leaders such as W.E.B. Du Bois would often spend the night in the Rustin home. Rustin came out as gay to his grandmother at a very young age, and she was mostly indifferent to his sexual orientation. Rustin was a talented and creative child who was a gifted poet, tenor, and athlete. He organized his first protest in a segregated restaurant where his white teammates were able to be served, but him and his other black teammates had to sit on a balcony named Nigger Heaven. According to Rustin, he appealed to both black and white members of the community to help fund his bail, and eventually he was able to be released. He allowed himself to be arrested as a way of drawing attention to segregation, which would be one of the causes that he would fight for for most of his life. When the Great Depression hit in the 30s, it made pursuing a higher education a bit of a challenge for Rustin. He had two short stints at two black colleges, Wilberforce University and Cheney State Teachers College. He returned to Cheney College as a peace volunteer for a two-week course sponsored by the American Friends Committee in the spring of 1937. The AFC trained volunteers in peaceful war opposition tactics and dispatched their trainees to cities across the United States. By the winter, he was ready to go to New York City and settle in Harlem with his aunt who was a school teacher. It was there where the Communist Party had begun to gain momentum and had a large presence. Rustin would flourish in New York and would enroll in New York City College where he would take up singing once again. He joined the Josh White Quartet and was involved in a revival of John Henry on Broadway with Paul Robinson. He began singing at Cafe Society in Greenwich Village as a way of helping pay through college. He also joined the Young Communist League, who at the time was really dedicated to fighting against racial segregation in the U.S. Armed Forces. Congress passed the Selective Service Act in 1940 during peacetime, and Rustin, who was a strong pacifist and staunchly anti-war, had to register for the draft. 
he was able to get an exemption at a draft board as a conscientious objector, which meant that he had to do alternative service. When World War II began, the Young Communist Party shifted its focus and this angered Rustin and it caused him to leave the organization. Rustin then put all of his energy into supporting a March on Washington being organized by A. Philip Randolph, who was the leader of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. The march was to protest racial discrimination in the defense contracting industry and in the military. However, before the march happened, President Roosevelt issued Executive Order 8802, which banned racial discrimination on the basis of race, creed, color, or nationality in the national defense industry. This didn't, however, reach Rustin's goal of a fully desegregated military, or all industries for that matter. Randolph decided to not move forward with the march, and this left Rustin disappointed yet again. He moved forward, but this wouldn't be the last time that he'd see Randolph. From there, he would join the Fellowship of Reconciliation, where he would meet one of his biggest mentors, Reverend A.J. Moost. FOUR was an interface pacifist organization that believed in nonviolence, fellowship, and fought for economic justice. Moose was heavily influenced by the teachings of Gandhi and his ways of nonviolent protest. Four formed CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, in 1942, and Rustin would travel across the country speaking and organizing nonviolent protests against racial inequality. This would get him a lot of unwanted attention, and eventually the draft board took notice. He was arrested on February 17, 1944, for failing to appear for alternative service, as he was required to as a conscientious objector. He went into a segregated prison in Ashland, Kentucky, where he was beaten by his white inmates for his pacifism and his open homosexuality. He was eventually transferred to a maximum security prison in Lewisburg, where he'd served the rest of his sentence. While in prison, he wrote letters back and forth with one of his lovers, who had to disguise himself as a woman in their exchanges. When he was released in 1946, World War II was over and the civil rights era was in its infancy. At this point, he had a wealth of experience in nonviolent protest, he rejoined CORE and began planning the Journey of Reconciliation, a precursor to the Freedom Rides that protested the lack of enforcement of the Supreme Court ruling on Morgan v. Virginia that desegregated interstate buses in the South. The protests failed, and he ended up getting arrested once again and working on a chain gang in North Carolina. Rustin's activism pulled him in many directions, and in 1948, he was invited to travel to India to meet one of his idols, Gandhi. However, Gandhi would be assassinated before he had the opportunity to meet him. Still, he traveled to India to help fight for India's independence from Britain. Years later, he would also travel to Africa to assist Kwame Nkrumah in a similar goal of African self-rule. Through all of his work, Rustin was an openly gay man. This, however, wasn't something that the public was aware of. That was until 1953, when he was arrested in Pasadena, California for having sex with two men in a parked car. Homosexuality was illegal in all states at the time. At this point, Rustin's homosexuality started to become a bit of a liability for the organizations that he worked for. Four terminated their relationship with Rustin when news of his arrest reached them. They felt that his actions could cast a negative shadow on the organization. He reconnected with Randolph, who was then able to get him a job at the War Resistance League a pacifist organization where Rustin would work for the next 12 years. The next few years, Rustin would keep somewhat of a low profile, but Rosa Parks' act of defiance in 1955 would result in the rise of Martin Luther King's profile as a leader of the civil rights movement. King had began organizing the Montgomery bus boycott in response to Parks' arrest. Randolph suggested that Rustin travel to Alabama to support King's actions. 
At this point, Russin was a 44-year-old seasoned activist, and Martin Luther King was 25 years old and inexperienced with nonviolent protest. That didn't prevent some people from being skeptical of his involvement with the boycott. After all, he was a gay man, which was extremely taboo at the time, and a draft dodger. When it came to respectability, he stood in stark contrast to Martin Luther King, who embodied in the eyes of many white people a respectable Negro. However, King took Rustin on, and his pacifism influenced King, who disposed of his armed guards under his advisement. The boycott ended with success in 1956, when the Supreme Court desegregated the bus system. Civil rights organizers quickly began mobilizing to fight for full desegregation of the South. Rustin used his connections with radicals and pacifists in the North to help fund much of King's speeches and journalism. He helped fund and organize the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which would be very central to the civil rights movement. Rustin began to loathe white leadership in civil rights organizations. He believed that the people that should be at the helm of the movement were black Southerners who were the subject. However, Rustin himself was from the North, and in some situations, this placed him at odds with certain black Southern organizers. Rustin and King's relationship would be challenged when Adam Clayton Powell Jr. threatened to tell the press that King and Rustin were in a gay relationship. This was in protest to King's 1960 plans to march outside of the Democratic National Convention. King would distance himself from Rustin and cancel the march. In retaliation, Rustin then left the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Into the 60s, Rustin divided his time between international pacifist activism and racial justice efforts in the states. Though he'd always been an advocate of nonviolent direct action, Rustin began to question whether or not nonviolent direct action alone was the best way of accomplishing his goals of racial equality and democracy. In 1963, Randolph and Rustin were planning a march on Washington for economic justice. But in May, police in Birmingham, Alabama turned fire hoses and attack dogs on black children and this shook America. King hadn't shown much interest in the march until this point. The focus of the march shifted when King decided to jump in and insist that the march be for civil rights. So the march became the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Rustin began to petition the big six civil rights organizations, SNCC, CORE, SCLC, the National Urban League, and the NAACP. He would then meet resistance from the last one when Roy Wilkins once again brought up Rustin's past as a gay communist draft dodger. Wilkins didn't want Rustin to be the front man for the march, as once again he was considered a liability. The resistance led to Randolph having to serve as the march's director and Rustin as his deputy. Planning moved forward. They began to plan the exact amount of bathrooms, doctors, and accommodations for an expected 2,500,000 people. However, they'd hit a bump in the road once again when Strom Thurmond, a South Carolina senator and segregationist, got a hold of Rustin's FBI file. The FBI had been tracking Rustin's activity since college. Thurmond took to the Senate floor to attack Rustin personally for his connection to communism and his sexuality. This still didn't make Rustin back down, though. The March on Washington was seething with respectability. Speeches had to be approved and several more radical speeches were cut entirely from the programming. Some of the speeches had to be edited down to be less aggressive. Most notably, John Lewis's militaristic speech was a topic of debate up to the day of the march. Rustin put together a list of 10 demands for the march and distributed pamphlets to bus drivers that were coming from all across the country to Washington. At first, it seemed like the march was a bit of a bust, but as people piled in, it became clear that the march was going to be a success. Everything went off with a hitch, and after King's speech, he took to the stage to make the goals of the march known. Ladies and gentlemen, 
The first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation, no compromise, no filibuster, and that it includes public accommodation, decent housing, integrated education, FEPC, and the right to vote. What do you say? In 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed and it outlawed discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or nationality. It also ended racial segregation in schools and public accommodations. The March on Washington was a landmark for the civil rights era, but it would also put an end to Rustin's personal belief in protesting alone being successful. He started to feel that the way to move forward was with a combination of protest and policy. After the march, he and Randolph formed the Philip A. Randolph Institute in 1964, which married civil rights issues to the issues of trade unions. Rustin would collaborate more and more with the Democratic Party, and as he got closer to them, members of the Black Power movement started to come out against him. Anti-war advocates started to become disappointed with him when he didn't immediately come out against the Vietnam War, and even for discouraging King from speaking about it as well. The movement that he was so instrumental in started to become disenchanted with him. Rustin was a man who ultimately believed in negotiation. He was, after all, a man of numerous identities and experiences and didn't feel that his activism was confined to him simply being a black man. In the 1980s, he opened up publicly about his sexuality and began focusing on the rights of gays and lesbians. He would meet Walter Nagel in Times Square one day and he would be his partner for the next 10 years. Rustin died on August 24th, 1987 of a perforated appendix a few days before the 24th anniversary of the March on Washington. He survived by his partner, Walter. If you had told me that gay people were involved in the civil rights movement when I was learning about black history in school, I would have scoffed at you and told you that that never happened. The narratives of LGBT people are often erased from our education, and sometimes that has the unintended impact of making people of certain intersections feel like they simply didn't exist. Bayer Rustin was a gay man who understood that there are more things worth fighting for than just your own battles. He traveled the world and fought for liberation of all people and surrounded himself with diversity. He was imperfect as most of us are, but he didn't let his imperfections prevent him from fighting for what's right, proving to the world that nonviolence can create change. If you like this video, you can support my work by becoming a monthly Patreon patron.
blues speak of so many things and making a kind of variety of the program. It requires a lot of different facts of life that we must know about. And when you think about the various nations of the earth, the various religions of the earth, the various nationalities, the various people all over the world. This is the bee signing off. Come back next Saturday at 10 a.m. for your weekly blues magazine. Weekly blues magazine. Weekly labor magazine. Labor opinion, history, and commentary. Often we have uh, interviews. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Remember, if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, you're probably on the menu. And last, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Tune in next week to Labor and Love where the labor meets the road. 2781 21st Street here at Mutiny it Radio. It don't make sense when you can't make peace. Bye-bye, Solina. Pita makes me proud to be a dad every day. My soulmate, Sylvia Ramirez, and her whole brood. As always, this show is dedicated to the working people. The working person dies every 15 seconds in this world as a result of work-related situations or conditions. Swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program 
we interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs>
Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to invite you down to Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco at 806 South Van Ness. Uh, we've got great food by our kitchen counter offer, burgers, tater tots, tachos, corn dogs, all sorts of good stuff like that. They're open from opening until 11 p.m. most days of the week, except Saturday. Every Saturday night, we've got live rock and roll, some of the best local bands in San Francisco, and touring acts as well. Come on down, 10 p.m., rock and roll, only night of the week. We have a $5 cover charge, always 5 bucks for live rock and roll. We're open from 4 p.m. until 2 a.m., Monday through Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 2 to 2. Come on down, have some drinks with us. We've got Whiskey Wednesday, Tequila Tuesday, and we've always got the Steve McQueen special, shot of bullet bourbon and a can of California lager for 8 bucks. Come down and enjoy our patio. It's open in the afternoon, not really in the evening, but a lot of good folks hanging out back there. Come on down, give us a shout. Drop by the bar, make some friends. Thanks, folks. Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District, San Francisco, California. With a happy hour every Monday through Friday until 7 p.m. Don't miss it. Go to Bender's Bar. Big supporter of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2018. Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons, is based on the novel Mr. Keene. Spark is San Gangbusters, the only national program to bring Clap Black Plastic is the show on Uni Radio. Gangbusters, presented in cooperation police and federal law enforcement departments throughout the United States. <laughs> Gangbusters in America's crusade against crime. As a contrast to terror, we also had adventure. Oh no, what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. (laughs) The shadow, Lamont Cranston, a man of wealth, a student of science, and a master of other people's minds, devotes his life to righting wrongs, protecting the innocent, and punishing the guilty. Cranston is known to the underworld as the shadow. Never seen, only heard, his true identity is known only to his constant friend and aide, Margot Lane. Today's story, Death Talks the Shadow. Mally's in the end cell, Mr. Murdoch. Just talk to him to the bar. You're the last visitor, you see. End cell, right. Hello, Mally. Huh? See, kid. Peter Murdoch. Murdoch. Gee, I thought you'd never get here. Well, pull yourself together, Mally. Yeah, it's easy enough for you to talk. You ain't been sitting here waiting. Every day the chair gets closer. Now, Mally. That's the curtain. Look. Hear that big dynamo turnover? Coming. It's a for me. For me. Shut up. 